How's everybody doing today? Are we excited? You know, this is uh, this is quite a text. I don't know if you guys read it this week. Um, in my opinion, it's a sobering text. It's a short text that uh, hits pretty hard. And I, I want to start right out of the, out of the gates and, and state what this text actually is. Um, like so much of our New Testament, uh, it, this is a letter. Okay, I want us to see that. I want us to see that there's an author of the letter. His name is Jude, that there are recipients of the letter. Um, the re- recipients here are not to uh, those in Philippi or Ephesus, um, but to those who are called, beloved, and kept. Uh, that tells me this is for a lot of people. Um, in fact, this letter, the way it's uh, laid out to us, uh, fits the exact structure and protocol calls of a Roman letter in its time. And I want us to just understand the significance of letters in the ancient world, because this is a world that doesn't have what we just take for granted. It's a world that doesn't have internet, uh, smartphones, email, texting. Uh, so if you have family or friends or business associates that live outside your orbit, letter writing is all you have. It's the only way you can communicate. And it requires a lot of work, especially the whole mailing of a letter, because what it required was a courier. A courier would be the one that would actually take the letter and travel by foot, sometimes hundreds of miles, uh, to deliver the letter. And this week, uh, or actually a couple weeks ago, I, I got a letter sent to me in the mail. Um, It was written on this beautiful white paper uh, with this amazing penmanship. And it was a letter uh, that was written by Eric Veeker, the brother of our latest resident, Treg Veeker. And in this, literally, it was a six-page letter. He just laid out his heart for his brother, how much he loves his brother, how much he respects his brother. And then out of that, uh, like a good brother, uh, said, this is what my brother needs, and this is how you can serve him, and this is what he lacks, and this is how you can make him better. And it was amazing. And, and it made me actually think that, that this is an art form that we've lost today of, of actually just getting out a piece of paper and, and writing hand letters to each other. Uh, And so this is how the ancient world is is communicating, especially over long distances or if you're communicating to a lot of people. I love how Dave Helm put this in his commentary, like when this letter would have been received by this church, by someone as great as Jude, who I'll talk about in a second, uh, the way he described that is they would have been running from the fields and running down uh, the the, the hallways and, and the streetways of where they lived to go to where this letter was going to be read, and they would have just, with anticipation, uh, looked forward to listening to it. And this is what so much of our New Testament is. They're letters that are written from apostles to the church. I think this is important for us to know because a letter is more than just a theological treatise, or it's more than just a post on a forum board. Letters are written because of relationship and friendship. They're, they're reading, written out of these uh, deep bonds of friendship and esteem for one another. This is why when you look at our letters in the New Testament, they always start off with just the affection that a Paul or a Peter 
uh, have for the people that they're writing to. In this case, Jude, he begins by saying to the beloved, I mean, you can just feel uh, the magnitude of relationship that is going on here. And I want to push this even more. I don't know, like, how you actually think about the Bible, but how you think about the Bible will actually control how you approach the Bible, how you listen to the Bible. And what I believe about this Bible is that this whole thing is a letter. It's a letter that, that is penned to us by God himself. In fact, I not only believe that, that God, of course, in partnership with humanity, because God has always, uh, much of what he does is in partnership with us, including writing this book, uh, that, that God wrote this, this whole book from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, but I also believe that this whole book was, was written before the creation of the world. In fact, that's what Jews to this day believe about this book. And this goes all the way back to the time of Jesus, that they believed that the word of God was before the world was. And this is why they believe that, that, it, it, that creation actually mirrored the very word of God because the, word, the, the world of God was created by the word of God. And John, in his gospel, in his opening statements, it has all of these thoughts for us as well. He begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning, before the world was, was the word. And by that word, the world was created. And of course, John's going to take this even further and say, and that very word, that written word, became living word. It became flesh, human flesh, and lived among us. But again, you don't have to uh, buy what I'm trying to sell in this regard, that, that this was written before the foundations of the world. But if you do believe it, uh, it's an awesome thought because it means this. It means that God already had us on his mind before we were made. And Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, before the foundations of the world, God chose us. God set his heart on us. Uh, this is why God already wrote a letter to us. It's kind of like the mother who writes uh, a letter to her child well before the child comes into the world. God, in the same way, uh, writes a letter. He has a letter waiting for us. And then in the fullness of time, it's like God gives his people the five books of Moses. And then he gives them the Psalms and the Proverbs. And then a little bit later, he gives them the prophets. And then at the right moment, he gives us this book the book of Jude. I mean, imagine right now if, if, if there's someone that you love um, a lot who is living on the other side of the globe and they have zero technology to communicate with you and you miss this person intensely and, and, and you just would love to see their face because you haven't seen them for a long time and then one day you go to, a, to your mailbox and there's a letter from this person. God is away from us, which is why he has sent us his spirit. But it's also why we can open this book. He gives us this amazing letter penned by his own hand, the book of Jude. Okay, let's talk about Jude. I'll start with his name uh, in verse 1. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. 
the name actually in the original language is Judas. Judas is the Greek version of Judah. And obviously, our, our English translators are, are uncomfortable with the name Judas for, for probably obvious reasons. Uh, so they translate Judas to the nickname Jude. Now, that doesn't mean that this is that Judas. Um, Judas, the one who betrays Christ, has been dead for some time. So now the question is, who is Jude? And in verse 1, he says that he's a brother of James. And to, to mention this must mean that James is a pretty big deal. Now, there are two James in the New Testament that are just that, a big deal. One is James, the disciple of Jesus, who's the brother of John. Uh, this James is martyred in Acts chapter 12. Uh, the other James is the actual brother of Jesus. And this James is quite in the background uh, during Jesus' ministry, but after the resurrection, uh, this James uh, comes to see his brother as his Lord and becomes the chief pastor in Jerusalem and gives us the New Testament book, the book of James. So then when you start having that, and then you come to a text like Mark 6, verse 3, uh, where we, don't, we just kind of gloss over it, but let's not gloss over it right now. I think I have a PowerPoint of this. Uh, they're talking about Jesus. Isn't, the, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas? Jude. So there's Jude. And, and this is why the early church fathers um, all attribute this book to Jude, the brother of James, the brother of Jesus. So I want us to just actually... <laughs> Think about this for a second. I mean, Galilean homes at this time were, were, were these families living in, in close, humble proximity to each other. They're enmeshed in this shared life. Um, they're, they're families that are just immersing themselves in the Torah. Uh, in fact, the church father, Jerome, when he went to this part of the world uh, to learn Hebrew so he could translate the Bible into Latin, this is what he said. He said, there doesn't exist a single Jewish child who doesn't know the entire Bible by heart. And that's so uh, a, a, a description, a, a characteristic of, of these humble Galilean families. Uh, they, they are immersed in the Bible. In fact, this text of Jude that we just read that probably just popped out at us and we're just like, what is this? And, and how do you make sense of it? Uh, this is just a window into Jewish homes at this day. I mean, if you and I could somehow go back in time and be a guest into this home, uh, this text that we just read reflects a typical uh, dinner conversation at night. Sodom and Gomorrah and Moses and deliverance from Egypt and Balaam, Cain, the sons of Korah. I mean, they're discussing these texts every single day, the way we discuss sports, movies, politics, the weather. And just think about this as well. Think about who's gathered around that table every night. There's Jude. There's his brother James. Oh, and not to mention Jesus. And if you ever wonder the kind of parents that Mary and Joseph were, look no further than the kids that they raised. Now, I don't know about you, but if Jesus was my big brother, who I shared a bedroom with, who I ate family meals, did chores, uh, walked to school, sat next to in synagogue, 
I would be making it abundantly clear to the people that I'm writing to, I'd be like, the brother of Jesus. That would be in there. But both Jude and his brother James define their relationship to Jesus actually the same way Paul does in his letters. They simply say, a slave of Christ. I'm like, what, a slave? Why not just a disciple of Christ or an apostle of Christ or, or even brother of Christ? Especially when you consider that a slave in the Roman world was at the absolute bottom. A slave was the most shameful and dishonorable label a person could have in that day. It meant that you had no rights, you had no privileges, no status, no honor. You were nothing more than property to your master. And then don't we start thinking to ourselves, but wait a second, doesn't the Bible talk about that when our life is in Christ, that, that we experience this amazing freedom, that we're, that we're free in Christ? In fact, yes, we're most free in Christ, but real freedom only comes when you find the right master. This is why we can look around at our world today and people more than ever, just live in bondage, bondage to their stuff, bondage to their appearance, their image, bondage to shame and guilt, bondage to anxiety and worry and fear. Uh, so much bondage these days. In fact, Americans, I thought about this. We actually pride ourselves a lot on being the most free people to exist in the world, and yet we might be the most enslaved people because it doesn't matter who you are. Everyone here today has a master. Someone or something controls you. And Jude, like his brother James and Paul, they call themselves a slave of Christ because they found the right master. And Jude at some point came to know Jesus as more than just his brother, but as his savior and his Lord and the master of his life. In fact, we see that at the end of verse four. Now what Jude uh, wants us to know at the very beginning, and this is incredibly important for us to know as well, he wants his readers to know who they are. Because if you and I don't know who we are right now in Christ, this letter will make no sense. In fact, it will feel harsh. It will crush you. It will devastate you, which is why, in my opinion, this is why many churches today don't even know there's a book of Jude in the Bible. And people ask me this week, like, why are you going to the book of Jude? My answer after reading it and studying it is because I think it might be one of the most loving books in our whole Bible. I mean, look at the first thing that, that Jude tells them in verse 1. He says, you are called of God. And this means something pretty amazing. If, if, if you know what, what it means to be called of God, it, it means that before you chose God, God first chose you. That before you set your heart on God, God way before that had already set his heart on you. And that in and of itself is freeing because now it's not about me. It's not about you. It's all about him. 
And then when you stop and think about what his call is and, and, and its effect on a person's life, uh, I mean, his call is, is something that calls us out. He calls us out of darkness and not just a world of darkness, but a life of darkness, hearts and minds that are enslaved to darkness. And then he not only calls us out, but he calls us into his wonderful light. I mean, like this morning, we heard testimony given to that. Can you give testimony to God doing that in your life? When we add someone to our staff, uh, one of the things we do at a staff meeting is we just have them briefly uh, give just a little bit of their testimony. And recently, we've added this just incredible guy named Ryan DeHaan to our staff. And when he's given his testimony, he can't hardly give it without tears. It's the most amazing just testimony of just what I'm talking about, of, of God calling him out of darkness and, and God calling him into this wonderful light. Or this, this past Thursday, our, our staff, we were just in a time of worship and, and, and we were praying together. And I, I, just, I was just so struck uh, by how many of, of our staff just prayed these raw prayers of, of, of how God was so good to just uh, call them out of darkness and, and, and call them into life, into light. Um, can you pray that? Can you give testimony to that? And Jude wants them to know that not, not only are you called, but, but even more, you're called because you're loved. In fact, in verse 1, uh, where he puts this, to those who've been called, who are loved in God the Father, uh, it, it literally, literally reads this, beloved uh, of the Father. We're the Father's beloved. And, and then in verse 3 and in verse 17 and verse 20, where my NIV says, dear friends, it's that same word. It's, it's, it's beloved. Jude is telling them throughout this whole letter how loved they are. In fact, this is why Jude even breaks from the traditional greeting of his day. The, the traditional greeting of his day is simply to say shalom, which means peace even to this day. It's, it's the traditional Greeting in Israel, it's the way people greet each other, shalom, shalom, unless it's uh, Sunday or Sabbath, and it's Shabbat shalom. Uh, Paul actually uh, changes this greeting, and he adds grace to shalom, and that's for the simple fact that the reason that we have shalom is because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. But only Jude, in his letter, uh, breaks from grace and adds two words. He adds mercy and love to his greeting. Oh man, I'm not good enough for, uh, I, I'm so ADD. <laughs> Is anybody else ADD or not? Okay. So Jude breaks from, from the, the simple shalom and he's the only to add mercy and love to his greeting. And why does he do that? Because the root of mercy and grace is love. And we're not just talking about any love right now. We're talking about the love of the Father. Do you know this love right now? Because if you don't, in your heart, know the love of the Father, then you don't really know who you are. And you'll spend your whole life searching to find this love, and you'll constantly be asking 
the world to give you an identity, and in that, you will become a slave of the world, and the world will become your master. This letter is just so encouraging. It's just oozing so much love, and if you don't see that and don't know the love of the Father, this, this letter is going to crush you. It's going to devastate Let's look at Jude's re reason for writing. It's in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, I actually felt compelled to write and to urge you, to implore you, to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. You catch that. Jude here Im implies that he was excited to, to, to write to them about uh, this world-changing, life-transforming salvation uh, that we have in Christ. But in instead, he has to lay that aside because there's a very serious threat that it's made its way into the church. And what is this threat? Well, that's the next verse. That's verse 4. He says, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago, they've secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality, or more specifically, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and they deny Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. So, Jude moves from writing about salvation to this threat that is, that is so significant. And the threat are these certain individuals. Now notice that Jude doesn't name them. Instead, he describes them. He describes them further in verse 4 as ungodly people. He describes it in verse 8 as people who reject authority. In verse 10, he describes them as people who slander anything that they don't understand. In verse 16, he says they're critics, they're complainers, complainers, they're in it for themselves. And what to me is probably the most scary description of all is these are people that are not out there, according to Jude. He says they're within you. Verse 12 they go to your love feast. Love feast is, is, is their term in that day for their gatherings. They're at your gatherings. They are in your church. They're small group leaders. They're ministry leaders. They're pastors. They're elders. And Jude says they, in verse 4, they have secretly crept in. In fact, this language of... of, of, of of crept in secretly uh, has strong hints in Genesis 3. This is exactly what the snake did in the garden. He, he, he kind of just secretly and cunningly just crept into that garden and he deceived Adam and Eve. That's why he crept into this garden. And yet Adam and Eve are placed there by God to protect that garden. But Adam and Eve, as we know, the story gave in to the snake's cunning not only was this the undoing of Adam and Eve, 
but it was also the undoing of Adam and Eve's relationship with God. And even more so, this led to the undoing of all creation. And this is why Jude is sounding the alarm. He is laying everything aside right now that he wanted to write to say, church, there is something brewing here to threaten you, to deceive you, to destroy you, to take you down. And it's not Rome. It's not the emperor. It's not the culture around you. It's not those crazy politicians. It's not the pagan forms of worship that you see on every street corner. The enemy, according to Jude, is within you. Wake up. And I say to that, no truer warning could be given to the church right now, especially in our country. Because even when you, you, you look at church history, uh, you start to see that the threats outside the church uh, have never really done anything except make the church stronger. I mean, the church has historically thrived in pagan cultures. It, it, it thrives in, in dark places, and, and it especially thrives when it's persecuted. In fact, Tertullian uh, said it best. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And, and what he meant by that is when you spill our blood, that blood on, on the ground is like fertilizer, and it just makes us grow stronger. But the way that the church historically has diminished and gone dead is actually internally. It rots from the inside out. It's, it's when people sneak in like snakes and they say exactly what the snake said to deceive. Did God really say that? Did God really say that about that tree and about that fruit? Did God really say that about marriage? Did God really say that about sexuality? Did God really say that about sin? Did God really say that about his character? Did God say that about his gospel? Did God say that about his kingdom? And that's exactly uh, what's going on. Uh, this is what uh, Jude is exposing because uh, look at verse 4, he says, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Or in other words, because I want to make this really clear to you, uh, because of grace, they are saying you can do whatever you want. You can live however you want to live. You can think however you want to think without any fear of God. See, this is, this is how they are perverting grace. They are actually abusing grace. Uh, they, are, they are showing grace uh, with no cost. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer is writing uh, to the German church uh, through his masterpiece, uh, the, the Cost of Discipleship, when the church in Germany was rotting from the inside out. Uh, he said that this perverted grace, this grace of no cost, it's cheap grace. That was his term for it, cheap grace. And this is what he writes. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is grace offered without the call to discipleship. Cheap grace is grace without a cross. And I'll give you my summation of this. Cheap grace is grace where there's no skin in the game. 
I mean, God entered skin so he could have his skin broken open and his blood poured out. The grace that God offers to us and to the world in Christ, it was costly. It cost him everything. And response to this grace, it's a grace. It calls us. It calls us to repentance. It, it, it calls us to discipleship. And see, these people that, that Jude is sounding the alarm on are, are people who creep in and, and they abuse the understanding of grace. They, they, they settle for a Jesus who eats with sinners. I mean, they love this. They say, see, Jesus accepts us all just as we are. And you know what I say to that? You better believe he does. He has accepted me in my most vile condition. He eats with me in those places. He accepts all of us in, in, in our most vile state. But he doesn't just leave us there. He eats with sinners so he can call sinners to repentance. The woman caught in adultery, I mean... These people, they, they, they love a Jesus who says to this woman, woman, neither, neither do I condemn you. And, and, and how true that statement is. I mean, Romans 8 verse 1, Paul says, for, for there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's one of the most amazing realities that we receive from Jesus. It's all his grace. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He then looks at her and he says, now go and leave. Go and leave your life of sin. The sexual immorality in your life, leave it. Or the lame man in John 5, I mean, these people, they, they love the fact that Jesus heals this man, but it, when Jesus sees this man later in the temple, he says to them, he says, don't sin or something worse will happen to you. Or what about Zacchaeus? Jesus didn't just eat with the town's worst sinner and call it a day. Zacchaeus repents, in fact, so much so that he says, Jesus, I'm going to pay back four times everyone that I've cheated. It's at this point that Jesus declares salvation has come to this man's house because he sees a man who has responded to him, whose life has changed, who repents and obeys God. And see, this is why the, the, the main point of, of this whole letter is in verse 3. It's church contend for the faith. Contend for it. It's a fight. It's a battle. It's a war. In fact, this word in the original language for contend is the Greek word agonizomai, and you can already get a sense for, for what this word means. Uh, it's, it's from which we get the word agony or agonizing. Uh, it's an athletic term in this day. It's used to the Greco-Roman athletes who are preparing themselves for the, for the Olympics. And so agonizomai is, 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 is the blood, it's the sweat, it's the tears that, that an athlete would pour into their training. It's, it's this intensity, it's this tenacity, it's this straining with everything an athlete has to win the medal. That's what it means to contend. How many of us right now are contending? 
How many of us could, could say, yeah, agonizomai actually, uh, it describes my walk with Jesus. <laughs> my, blood, my walk with Jesus is blood, sweat, tears. It's everything I have. And in this, I, th- I think it's very important It's important to Jude that that we know what we're contending for and what we're not contending for. Uh, We're not contending uh, for God to like us more if we do this because Jude already told us God has has set his affection on us. He's called us. He's accepted us. He's he's lavished the love of the Father onto us. And so we're not in this this fight to, to get God to like us, to earn his favor. We actually fight because we already know his favor because God has already lavished his favor, his love, and his mercy upon us. What we're contending for is the faith. And the faith includes the fight to be faithful. It's the fight to be wholehearted. It's it's the fight to be all in. It's the blood, the sweat, and the tears. But again, faith always needs an object. What are we fighting for? What is our faithfulness? Uh, what, is, what is the object of our faithfulness and our wholehearted? Well, let me show you how this actually reads in the Greek. The word order, that is. Jude says, I implore you to contend for the once for all entrusted to God's holy people faith. That faith. Let me repeat this. I implore you to contend for the once for all entrusted to God's holy people faith. See, this isn't a faith that we cleverly fashion and shape according to the way we want it to be. This is a faith that God entrusted to us, but before he entrusted it, he shaped it. He fashioned it. And if you want just something just concrete in terms of the faith that we are contending for, it starts with this book, this letter from the hand of God given to us, entrusted to us. I was thinking this this week, um, this isn't a hypothetical if for me, but I'm going to state it that way, because this is how I thought about it, and this is how I applied a lot of this to my own heart and soul. If God actually wrote a letter, this book, the Bible, to us, then Rod, do you think that it has authority? Does it have the authority to, to tell us who God is? Does it have the authority to tell us who we are? Does it have the authority to tell us what a man is, what a woman is, what a human is? Does it have the authority to tell us what human sexuality is or isn't? Does it have the authority to tell us what marriage is or isn't? I mean, do you think that this book, if, if, if God wrote it, has 
the authority to tell us how to live and how we are to relate to each other and how we are to be like God and how we are to be in the world and for the world, but not of the world. If God wrote this book, does it have the authority to tell us what's truly wrong with the world and, and what's wrong with humanity and what's wrong with the human heart that there actually is, as this book said, something called sin and that there's a spiritual battle going on as this book describes between heaven and hell. And we think that this book has the authority to tell us what God is going to do to rescue it, which, the world call, which this book calls the gospel. See, the reason why I ask these questions is because what characterizes these people who have crept in, verse 8, they reject authority. And it's in verse 4. They reject the one who's behind all authority, who is the Lord, who is the true master. They reject Christ. They deny Christ as their Lord and master. They have no fear of God, no respect for God's holy word. In fact, they play with God's word. They play with his church. It's all but a game. Why? Because at the end of the day, they don't want Jesus to be Lord. They don't want him to be the master of their life. They want to be the master of their life. And see, this is how churches, seminaries, ministries that, that once thrive can die in less than a generation. And I believe this with all my heart. If Crossroads stops contending for the faith, a church like Crossroads would be dead in a decade. Why do you think Jesus repeatedly over and over again is telling his disciples to beware of those wolves who come at you in sheep's clothing? Or how about the letters that Jesus writes to the seven churches in Revelation? I mean, over and over again, he has a harsh rebuke for them, which is usually centered on the fact that they have allowed these false teachers uh, to creep in, to pervert the truth. And it's not just Jesus, but it's all over the New Testament. The, the, these people who are writing to the church, Paul, Peter, John, uh, it's, it's always beware. And it's not beware of Rome. It's not beware of those pagans who hate you. It's not beware of the, of the culture around you. It's always in some form beware of those crafty, snaky people that are creeping in amongst you. So let me end with this. I'm in this fight every day. And it's getting harder and harder. And Jude is so right. Our battle is not against our culture as much as people think it is. It's not a battle with our politicians. Uh, the battle today is within. The enemy is within our gates. And I want you to know, I, I, I'm not naive as, as, as I and the leadership of this church contend for the faith we are counting the cost. For me, if it means my reputation or even worse, I am utterly committed to agonizomai, to fight blood, sweat, and tears for the faith that's been entrusted to us. Our staff right now uh, this year uh, we are making uh, statements, biblical statements, about what we believe the Bible says about marriage, about what the Bible says about gender, sexuality. 
I'm really proud of Steph Tesla, our elders, the marriage team, our team leads. Uh, and these statements of faith that, that we have uh, drafted are non-negotiables for the people that work here. We are contending for the faith. But when you read Jude, I, I, I want us to hear even more what I'm going to say right now. Uh, the, the faith, Jude says, is not entrusted to pastors, clergy, or, or, or people with titles. Uh, Jude tells us that the faith is entrusted by God to the saints. And really what the whole book of, of Jude really is about is it's the true church contends for the true faith. You know why we're here today as a church? Is because the true church has done this throughout the generations going all the way back to Jesus. And think about this. Now, right now, the baton is in our hands. It's our time to run the race. And this is why it's my challenge to all of us in this room, my fellow pastors, that we contend for the faith in our marriages that we contend for the faith in our families, that we contend for the faith with, with one another, that, that we most of all contend for the faith in our own heart, in our own soul, in our own life. Just think about it. Jude is literally laying aside, writing about salvation, as great as salvation is to write about what he's writing about because if we actually lose the faith, we're going to lose salvation. And I want to end with this, why we do this, because what we do, why we do what we do is very important. We do it as people who are beloved of the Father. We absolutely have to know this. We have to know this because it's who we are, and we have to know who we are. I mean, even Jesus needed this. I mean, right before Jesus launches his ministry, he's, he makes his way to John to be baptized, and as Jesus comes forth uh, from those waters of baptism with all the huge crowds, their eyes are fixated on him, all of a sudden those words from his Father in heaven just thundered down and said, world, do you see him? That's my son. And my heart is ravished with delight in him. Listen to him. If you want to know why Jesus could take on the devil and not flinch, and why he could move with such strength in a world of chaos, and why he could be hated and rejected and persecuted and ultimately humbled and humiliated, it's because he knew at every single moment in every single confrontation that he was his father's beloved. This truth burned in his heart. It defined Jesus. And this is why until we know this love, the father's saying to us, the father's saying to you, world, this is my son. This is my daughter in whom my heart is ravished with delight. We'll never live loved and we'll never have the courage to contend or fight. Have you found the right master? Are you free right now? Are you free of worry, anxiety, fear? 
Are you free of guilt? Are you free of shame? Are you free of this world? Are you free of your selfish self? If not, it's probably a sign that you haven't found the right master. There's only one master who can set you free from your selfish you, your fear, your worry, your anxiety, your guilt, your shame. You know what he says? Come to me because I'm calling for you. And I love you. And I'll keep you. I'll keep you. I'll hold you. Right now, you can come to him. You can surrender your life to him. You can make him the Lord and master of your life. And in that, you can be free. And to those of us who know him, Let's contend for the faith, whatever, whatever the cost, knowing who we are. We're called. We're loved. We're so loved of the Father. And we're kept safe in Christ. I mean, think about that right now. Christ is a shield about us. He's a strong tower that we can run into and be safe. 